You are listening to Making Contact. I'm Andrew Stelzer. Joining me now is Robert Newworth. He's the author of Shadow Cities, A Billion Squatters, A New Urban World. Thanks so much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. So uh, first of all, let's talk about what a squatter is. Uh, For those of us in the West, um, we may picture a bunch of kids wearing black, uh, you know, all punked out in an abandoned home or or something like that. But what is a squatter? uh, What's the global picture of squatters? Well, yeah, it's very different. Um, We do have that picture, and it's kind of pejorative in some ways. Uh, But in most of the world... Um, squatting is a family issue, which means um, it's uh, based on the fact that the urban economy works, the rural economy doesn't work, and people go from the rural area to the city seeking jobs. When they get to the city, they can find a job, but they can't find a home. So they wind up joining with some other urban migrants and uh, seizing land and building their own homes. Um, And so typically it's not an already built building that's occupied by some kind of youthful, punked out or anarchist or whatever grouping. It's a bunch of folks who are just trying to survive and bring their families to the city too, who take over land and build a shack. And over time, those shacks are, uh, a cardboard shack is turned into a wood shack and a wood shack is turned into a brick shack and a brick shack is turned into a reinforced concrete shack with a second floor. And then it's not a shack anymore. It's an apartment building. And is this new? Is this post-Industrial Revolution or has this always been the Well, case? I mean, when do you date the Industrial Revolution? Sure, it's new in the sense that it's uh, uh, rural to urban migration has really taken off um, since the 1960s and the structural adjustment programs that created economic dislocation in the developing world. But in a way, it's not new at all. I mean, if we go back in history, it's actually how our cities developed. Uh, San Francisco had tons of squatters. It was developed by squatters during the gold rush. Um, and Golden Gate Park was occupied by squatters before there was a deal made to legalize the rest of the squatters in the city and turn Golden Gate Park into a park. Um, New York City had squatters on the Upper West and Upper East Side. They were, uh, you know, before those neighborhoods were developed, we're talking 150 years ago. Um, so this is a common form of urban development uh, in the States, in Europe, everywhere. Um, it just so happens that we're seeing the phenomenon in a different way now because it's happening in the developing world while we in our developed uh, cities no longer see the same uh, extent of squatting and the same type of squatting. Now, are there problems related to squatting? I guess I should say, what are the problems related <laughs> to squatting? Uh, to, to research your book, you went to uh, Mumbai, you went to Rio, mm-hmm. uh, Istanbul. Nairobi, and, yeah. and Istanbul, four main cities, but I know you also studied a lot of other cities. Yeah, uh, It seems the problems that we might think are uh, there exist related to squatting or maybe not the problems we should be uh, addressing. Right. Well, that's certainly true. You know, we, um, and particularly the the sort of aid-minded people, uh, see deprived uh, material conditions. We see the house and we say, oh my God, people are living in a mud hut. Um, And it's true. People are living in a mud hut and and I don't want to say that that's great. Um, But if you ask the people um, which I did. I went around, uh, let's take in Nairobi, I went around Kibera and many of the other shanty towns of uh, Nairobi. Um, and I asked people, 
if if you could articulate two things that you wanted or one thing that you wanted or three things that you wanted, um, what would they be? And it was never the house. It was never the bricks and mortar. It was roads. It was street lighting, electricity, water. It was infrastructure. It was not the structure. And so... Our problem is that we go in with a mindset of, oh, my God, these poor people are living in a degraded house. And we don't recognize that their point of view is, if you give us control over this house, we'll rebuild this house 20 times over until we make it into something that's really nice. We need the goodies that cities should provide, sewers, water, infrastructure, road pattern that we can all agree on and that people don't get evicted from, but... That's what we need. And uh, I, I'd say 90% of the time, people didn't mention a better house. They mentioned the infrastructure that would give them a better life. And so uh, are there cities that are doing that? You, you talk about in, in Istanbul specifically, there's yeah. some old rights on the books. But are there cities that are uh, making productive movement towards uh, giving the squatters what they need? Well, I mean, some cities are. Uh, in Rio has, um, the situation has changed now because of the coming of the World Cup and the uh, Olympics, which we can talk about later. It's a separate issue. But um, when I was in Josinha, uh, the people there got electricity by stealing it. Now, I'm actually in favor of that, but we and we can talk about why. But they stole electricity, and for years, the public utility said, well, this is horrible. We have to cut these people off. There's, this is, you know, they're stealing it. And at a certain point, they realized, wait, these people will pay. And so they went into the community and made a deal. They basically said, we'll give you legal electricity. We'll spend the money. We'll put, down, put up the poles and bring legal electricity if you take a meter. And, uh, you know... The vast majority of people in this uh, community, which is about 200,000 people, um, said, sure, we'll take a meter and give us the electricity. So this was a way of bringing exactly what people needed, stable electricity that didn't short out in the rain, to the squatter community, even while people don't have, quote-unquote, property rights. And what that also does is it gives them staying power. Because once people have electricity, it's hard to say, oh, my God, you know, you're, you're awful, you're evil. They're paying. They're legitimate citizens who are paying for their power like everyone else. And that begins to give them legitimacy within the power structure, which is super important. But I, I, in reading through your book, there are so many stories of corruption, mm-hmm. um, primarily, although, although throughout the the kind of the squatter communities, but mainly on the government side. Yeah. So bringing people into the fold, whether it's even just with an electric bill or, or any sort of institutional uh, inclusion, I'm wondering, is that is that really to the advantage <laughs> of people? Well, you know, as a, as a former community organizer, my desire is to see people organize and seize power, right? Um, but I'm willing to trade that for just organizing. And I do think that... The more that people perceive that they can, I mean, you know, the example I used from Rio was a top-down example. And I'm totally sympathetic to your argument that, you know, government is not your friend in most of these locales. And it probably isn't necessarily your friend here in Oakland where we're taping this show. But, But the point is, if people can organize to demand 
the right to what everyone else in the city gets. Everyone else in the city gets water and pays for it. Why shouldn't the shantytown get it? Everyone else in the city gets electricity and pays for it. Why shouldn't the shantytown get it? So if people can organize to demand that um, and use the fact that they were stealing it as a, uh, a mechanism to say, look, we're willing to even give up our freebie for the legitimate service, they are, in some sense, taking power, and they are giving themselves a kind of quasi-governmental control over their own lives. And I would argue that that's really important, whether or not the government is fully representative, whether or not the government is corrupt. There is a way that you have to work with the existing structure to create new structures. And, uh, you know, maybe I'm a Pollyanna about it, but, but I do think that that's necessary for people. I read uh, recently uh, after the typhoon in the Philippines mm. that there was a case of uh, a longstanding squatter community on the land of a politician, and they didn't kick him off. Uh, sorry, they didn't kick. He didn't kick the squatters off mainly because they vote in really large numbers. Is that mm -hmm. common? Are 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 these communities? Do these communities wield that political power in many cases? Yes, they do, and they just don't perceive the kind of power that they have. And that's the problem. Um, they're used often by politicians as sort of vote banks. So that politician, I, I'm not directly familiar with the, uh, you know, the case in the Philippines, but that politician, I'm sure, uses those people as a vote bank. The question is whether the people will then turn around and organize and say, OK, he hasn't kicked us off the land, but what's he done for us lately? Has he given us water? Has he given us the things that we need in order to grow our community? And so it seems to me the crucially important thing is for people to turn that relationship around and start demanding certain things of the politicians in that relationship. Otherwise, the politics is clientelist, and that's the big problem, that the politicians come in and once every four years they get your votes and you get a, yeah, a little bit of security in that you don't get evicted, but are you really developing your community in the way you want it to develop? In writing your book, um, I know you were able to talk to some government officials as well. And, uh, you know, some of the numbers you came up with, half of Istanbul are squatters, half of Mumbai are squatters. Mm. So uh, this is not a, a secret to, to high-ranking high officials and politicians do they really have a problem with this? I mean, I'm I'm wondering, do they claim to have a problem with it when it's politically mm -hmm. expedient? And also, what do they think of us in the West when we, you know, when we, oh, one home is occupied. This is a huge deal. I mean, they must recognize that these cities ha have, have come to be what they are in a large part because of this massive working class population. Uh, they do and they don't. I mean, you know, they play both sides of the fence and that's the problem. Um, and uh, often in the pursuit of so-called modernity, they bulldoze these communities, and that becomes a real problem. And so you see it in Rio, where there have been shantytowns evictions and uh, communities destroyed due to the development interests that come along with the World Cup and the Olympics. Um, and, you know, the mayor of Rio will argue that that's totally necessary and we have to do this and this is modernization and this is but, you know, these are people's homes and these are people's lives and these are communities where people have lived for decades. And um, it's really important to accept that these communities are 
uh, legitimate urban neighborhoods with a legitimate voice and a legitimate part in the culture and legitimate needs. The political structure, sadly, I think, you know, as your prior question suggested, you know, treats these as a vote banks. And then when there's a developer with a lot more money is willing to push people out. And uh, that's a real difficulty. So the, pol- the local politicians play both sides of the fence. Um, Istanbul is an example where the political structure used the premise of increased density and legalization and better building qualities as uh, a vote bank to, uh, you know, basically gain control of the city. Um, what helps Istanbul is this odd quirk of Turkish land law, which... Uh, Actually, I think would be great if it were adopted all around the world. Um, And in old-fashioned Ottoman Turkish land law, uh, there were um, two forms of city government. There's the big city government and the little city government. And in every neighborhood has two mayors, the big city mayor and the little city mayor. And if you have 2,000 people in a neighborhood, no matter whether you own the land or not, you can petition the federal government to be recognized as a legal sub-municipality. And therefore, you have a political structure. And so almost every squatter community in Istanbul has a popularly elected squatter government that collects not taxes, but some user fees from businesses and other things in the community, which it then does public works with. And that gives people the possibility of creating a real urban neighborhood that can't be destroyed. And that's been a great thing. Have the politicians tried to get rid of that law? Um, they haven't tried to get rid of the law. They've certainly tried to get rid of some of the communities. But because the communities have this quasi-federal recognition, they've been more successful at resisting eviction. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Istanbul also has the, you put your your uh, tent up at night, and if it's there in the morning... You, it's you not exactly a tent, but yeah. If you build a structurally habitable building overnight, um, you can't be evicted without due process of law. So they can't just flatten it. Um, and so there was, it's a little different now because Istanbul is much more built out and developed. But there was historically this cat and mouse game of squatters would build, uh, someone would rat them out, and the cops would show up before they were done and squash the places. And finally, they would use the right quick drying concrete and pay off the right people in the community that no one would rat them out and they would build their homes and they would be there in the morning when they were discovered and they couldn't be thrown out. Um, And that was also a really great thing. It's the Gece Kondu law, the built overnight law in in Turkey. And in the U.S. and and in some European countries, it, it used to be a lot easier to claim adverse possession, to take possession of a property that you were uh, living on, when did that change, and, and how was uh, most most interested in how the public mindset around that whole living situation was changed so that people accepted uh, making it much more difficult? Well, I mean, I don't think it was... Uh, there wasn't any change in the law. What happened was that case law and judges began to change the period of years required to establish an adverse possession claim. Um, And adverse possession is difficult to claim because you have to be open and notorious, as the law reads. And most squatters tended to try to fly beneath the radar and not let everyone know that they were there because that was part of their staying power. But the law says that you have to let everyone know you're there. 
So judges began eroding that. And while, uh, you know, in ancient Roman law in what's called usucapio, which is their version of adverse possession, you only required two years and you were in. Um, it became five years and then it became 10 years. And now it's like 20 or 25 years that you have to be there in open and notorious occupation. Um, the other thing was that outside of truly organized groups of squatters who were successful in taking over buildings and were, um, you might almost call them very businesslike in how they operated the building. They had to make sure that everyone was pulling their weight, that when they had a construction need, they formed a construction brigade and they all pitched in and they put in new beams and they made the buildings really habitable. Um, they were the ones who succeeded. The ones that gave people a bad name were squatters who just wanted to move in and party and, like, you know, lit the floor on fire to stay warm in the winter. And those are the squatters who are, you know, typically written about in the papers as, oh, these squatters, they set a building on fire, or, oh, these squatters, you know, uh, were a crack den, you know, back in the day. Um, that whole phenomenon gave squatting a real black eye, even though that's not the majority of squatters uh, in the world or in the United States. But that really gave squatting a black eye because those folks were not good neighbors. I mean, I don't think any of us wants to live in a row house whose neighbors are setting the floorboards on fire. That endangers us. And so it is understandable. But um, that's when it began to really get a bad reputation and people began to accept that, oh, like these these squatters are horrible. How did your uh, experience learning about squatters change uh, the way you thought about the concept of homelessness, especially as we as we see it here um, in the U.S.? I know when I've traveled in many developing nations, the idea of being homeless to them is outrageous. And if they come here and they see people literally on the street with yeah. no shelter, they say, that's yeah. unbelievable, even though they come from a country racked with poverty. So how, how does this change how we might view the idea or, or, or homeless people? Well, you know, um, it made me much more, uh, much more conscious of what our trade-offs in our system deny people. And, you know, back in 1944, I think it was, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was president, um, gave a State of the Union message, and he called for a second Bill of Rights. And this Bill of Rights was going to be the right to a home, the right to a job, um, the right to a certain income. Um, and it was 10 things that were more tangible and therefore more difficult to uh, actually win in the United States. But, you know, there is an acceptance in other countries in the world that puts us to shame. And that acceptance is that no one should be without a home and so that there was some way in which the squatters were right, even though there may be all sorts of problems with how their communities developed and the rich people living next door may be somewhat perturbed or angry about it and there's bad relationships. But there is a sense that people are doing what they need to do because everyone needs four walls and a roof. And we don't have that social compact here. And uh, Roosevelt articulated the second Bill of Rights, but it never got dealt with 
after Roosevelt died and then, you know, the post-war years, it didn't get dealt with and the great society movement under Johnson didn't deal with it. And so it, it really says to me that the ethics of our system that places all on economics um, are upside down, that our commitment has to be lives for people. And, you know, the, the solution to homelessness is, in a sense, homes. Um, and then you deal with all the social problems that people have, the alcoholism or the drug abuse or whatever else that people have that is a secondary uh, component of them, of, of their problem. But, you know, the ultimate solution to being homeless is a home. And uh, the developing world gets that, and we don't. And, and who's going to win that battle of ideas? Uh, you calculate a third of the world will be squatters in the next if, few decades. If current trends continue, um, who's going to win that battle of ideas? Well, you know, it depends where. Um, I, I mean, I think we've already seen that um, we are not, succeeding the ownership society and the way in which they packaged subprime mortgages into credit default swaps that then crashed and almost brought down the entire global banking system. Um, you know, that version of the ownership society didn't work and is not going to work and is not going to democratize the space for homes in our country. And so we have to begin to accept and I think to turn around um, our expectation on that, that the private market is not going to provide homes that people can afford. It's not good at doing that. It's good at providing the homes that people will pay way too much for. That's what the private market is good at. Look, you know, the free market is perfectly fine when we're talking about coffee cups. But when we're talking about necessities and a scarce environment, everyone will overpay. Everyone will overpay for a home. And that's what goes on. We're all paying. You know, years ago, it was said you shouldn't pay more than 25% of your income for your home. And then they upped that to 30% of your income. Well, why? When did, when did it change? Well, because affordability, you know, houses weren't affordable at 25%. Now, many, many people are paying 50, 60, 70% of their income for their home. And that's just unsustainable. I don't think, I think it's very hard to win that. But I do think that we have to start looking at that question. Did you uh, become more convinced uh, throughout your, your research and, and writing this book that uh, property ownership itself uh, is a bad idea? Well, look, you know, um, even my squatter friends, if someone came to them and said, do you want a title deed for your, uh, you know, building? They would say, yes, of course. Um, everyone wants control over their home and the knowledge that they can't be evicted. I, I, I think it's really universal. I mean, I want, I live in New York City. I'm a tenant, but I need some security to know that I just can't be summarily thrown out because the landlord gets it in his head that he, um, can make more money. Um, and, uh, so I do think that I'm, I'm not, I'm not saying that property rights are 100% bad, but I am saying that there is something to be, there is a possession right, and possession is important. And we do have this old saying, although no one really thinks about what its implication is, that possession is nine-tenths of the law. Well, in a way, yes, and we should begin to honor that, that when you are in occupancy, that's a possession right. 
and uh, it may not be the same thing as an ownership right, but um, we have to honor it, and and we have to begin to yes think about changing a system that makes private ownership the be all end all of control. Um, most people are not owners of property, and uh, we have to recognize that, and they need some security too. Well, you also, I think, said that many people would be afraid of personal title deeds because it would set off uh, kind of well, some, war, yeah. wars within the community. And, and I guess you said that the co- a cooperative model might work better. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think, you know, unfortunately what we do in the United States is we, we tend to put everything into language that we understand. So you could structure every single squatter community in the world as a community land trust and say, hey, the land's owned. Right. We'll just name it a community land trust, file the papers, and it'll all be a community land trust. My argument would be that in a way these communities are found community land trusts. They don't need that uh, piece, of, piece of paper somewhere to prove that. They're already proto-cooperatives. They're already doing it. And there's a cultural acceptance of, okay, you're living there, you're my neighbor. And so, no, I don't have the right to buy you out or throw you out or something like that. You have a right to stay. Um, I do think that a kind of more cooperative model is, is a much better one, a kind of uh, somewhat anarchistic but more cooperative model. And it was, you know, it was a couple of friends in, in, uh, in Nairobi who made that comment about never give us a title deed. They lived together in, uh, there was four guys who were sharing a hut. And they lived together in that hut. And I asked them, you know, do you want a title deed? And they said no, because if they did, they would begin fighting over who actually could control that one title deed. And then they wouldn't be friends anymore. Um, So their view was that the amity of the community and the way that the community could stabilize itself was in the cooperation between them and the families around them. And uh, I think that's great. If we could find a way to recognize that, um, that would be wonderful. But the sad truth is that that community was bulldozed. So they didn't get a chance to put that into practice. And if they had had the deed, maybe. That's the thing. So maybe structuring these and, and being able to say, I mean, maybe a better thing than, when, than let's say there's an agency, UN Habitat, the UN organization that works on these things. And instead of doing, quote unquote, slum upgrading, um, and I would really argue this, instead of doing upgrading, which means making the building better, I think it would be much more appropriate for the UN to just go into all of these settings and say, we're going to buy the land, not in our name, in the name of a community land trust, which will be administered by the people themselves. And we're going to buy it, spend the money, file that title deed. You guys now own it. You build it. They'll build it. Squatters will build it. They know how to do that. They don't need someone to build housing for them. They know what a toilet is. They know what construction is. They know how to do these things. Um, That would be a better use, I think, of UN money and a way forward that would structure these communities to be real communities that would preserve themselves and better themselves over time. And that would be amazing. I know you mentioned families. Uh, are there any other things you, you really noticed in common in different parts of the world in these communities that you could kind of describe to folks who've never been in, in, into 
Well, I would say, you know, people need to know that these are tremendously commercially vibrant places. You know, we have this view when we hear shantytown or the UN term of art is slum. We think, you know, just colossally concentrated misery. And, you know, I'm not saying that living without water or without sewers is a picnic. But the amount of commercial vibrancy in these communities, I mean, in the mud hut neighborhood of Kibera, there's just, you know, store after store after store on the main drag. There are bars, there are little concert halls, there are churches, there are beauty salons, there are cafes, there are, I mean, and, and hundreds, thousands of these businesses all throughout the community. So we need to recognize that these are really where people live and work. Um, people don't have to leave the so-called slum or shantytown to make their money, to live their life, to send their kids to school. There are schools within these communities. And that's really super important to recognize, that these, these communities are not only emblems of misery. There's a whole panoply of life. There are kids growing up here. There's a whole panoply of opportunities. There are millionaires in the shantytowns who are making money and running. Uh, I knew a guy in, in the Mud Hut neighborhood of Kibera who had made so much money from pharmacies that he owned within the shantytown that he owned uh, real apartment blocks in the legal neighborhoods of town. But he preferred to live within the shantytown. That was where he was comfortable. Um, so there's a tremendously you know, vibrant community there if people just pay attention to it. And I think that's really important to know. Um, most of my questions I had written down. Uh, one thing we may focus on: Do you know anything about this um, high-rise building in uh, Torre David? Um, you know, I mean, the only thing I can say about it: I've never, I have not been to Venezuela, but uh, you know, the squatters in Torre David are very brave. Um, they've seen an opportunity to create a vertical neighborhood, right? I mean, it's pr probably the tallest squatter-occupied building in the world. And um, what it is, it's a uh, big, uh, I think it was part offices and part apartments that it was designed for, tower that was built in downtown Caracas, and they ran out of money. And the bottom fell out of the economy, and there was no more demand for it. Uh, and so it sat vacant, and people took it over and did an organized invasion and uh, cut, up it, cut it up into units. Um, I think it functions like a community. I think there are stores on various floors. And uh, I think that this, the, the government of Venezuela should work with these folks to uh, improve it, make it more secure, make it a better place for people, and, yeah, endorse it, have them run it. So far, I have to say, that's not been the response of the Chavez and now Maduro government, um, which has played both sides of the fence with it and been, they don't evict people, but they haven't gone in there and ameliorated some of the conditions. And I mean, there are some problems there in terms of no railings on the balconies. Uh, so if you're not careful when your kid's playing, your kid can fall down 20 stories. Um, I don't think there are elevators, so you have to schlep everything up and down, uh, you know, 20, 30, 40 stories. Um, and that's not conducive to, you know, great life. You can do it, but it's harsh. 
Um, so I think the government could play a role in working with people, and particularly, you know, a government that has so much oil revenue, like like Venezuela. One would hope they would do that. Um, I would love to get down there and actually experience the reality of Torre David. Um, uh, it sounds like a quite extraordinary place. We're also doing a, a upcoming show about um, Rio and World Cup Olympics development. Anything else you want to say about what's what's been going on there in terms of clearing out these communities? Well, um, you know, there's... I've never understood cities, first of all, cities push for these large games because it seems that so much investment is required and so much dislocation is required and what's the benefit really for people? What's Rio really going to get out of this for the future aside from the one-off of a World Cup or the one-off of an Olympics? You're going to get an Olympic village and what can you do with it after the Olympians are gone? Um, so I don't see it as a... I don't see any of these games necessarily as a net positive for any of the cities that have uh, hosted them. I think it drains the economy and it's used for a kind of gentrification. Um, and in Rio, that's been terribly true. There may be a few transportation gains. Um, they are putting a subway station in extending the line that goes down to the Zona Sul. Um, they're putting a subway station in San Conrado, which happens to be right near Josinha. Um, so there will be better transportation for the squatters in Josinha, um, kind of by accident, but it will exist. It'll cut down on transportation problems, and maybe that's a good thing. Um, but in terms of the overall for people, there have been a lot of evictions. There have been a lot of uh, you know squashing down of squatter communities, particularly smaller ones that were in the way of perceived improvements that they had to make for the uh, games. Um, there wasn't any due process. There was a horrible process. People are moved further out of town into housing projects um, or buildings that are like housing projects. And um, I think it's very unfair. I mean, I think the situation down in Rio has been really uh, um, dramatically unfair to the poor. And, uh, you know, the, the city officials have a, a view that this is what's necessary for improvement in modernity, um, but they're leaving out. I mean, in, in Rio, it's one in five people in the city lives in the favela. They're leaving out 20% of the population and making life much more difficult for them. And that's a sad thing. Um, so I haven't been back down to Rio since the announcement was made the, the games were coming. Um, and so I don't really know what's happened to the urban fabric in most of the favelas. I've talked with some people, and I do have to say, you know, the, the pacification program in the favelas cuts both ways. And, you know, the favelas are this separate case of having been communities that because they were off the municipal control grid, so to speak, um, there was an opportunistic infection of large drug gangs that basically operated with impunity in a lot of the favelas. And as part of their run-up to the games, the police have sort of come in with a kind of what they call pacification program. And that, uh, I think, you know, for whatever you want to say about the uh, drug gangs in the favelas, there were time periods when they were incredibly communitarian. And they did things for the communities. 
and they had some respect for the local residents because they were local residents themselves, many of the apparatchiks in the crime gangs. And, uh, you know, the police don't have that same attitude. Um, and the police were always, when I was in Rio, not your friend. They were not the people that you wanted to hang out with. They were not trustworthy. The only times that I ever was accosted with any violence in Rio was by the police. Um, I had a gun pressed up against my stomach by the police coming out of Rosinha, basically because they wanted to extort money from me. So they're not your friends. And uh, I'd be very interested in going back down there and seeing how people have accepted this greater police presence in the favelas. And, and is it really benign or not? Um, and, you know, I'm certainly not making any great argument for the benign effects of organized criminal activity. I'm not in favor of drug dealing and I don't support necessarily using drugs. I'm not, you know, I don't, don't want to criminalize people, but I don't. Uh, you know, uh, I don't think it's necessarily a good thing, but um, I don't know that the cops are a, good, a force for good. Mm -hmm. Have you seen any any squats that you think actually should be torn down? They're just too un unsanitary, or too dirty, or too ramshackle. Or... No, because everything can be improved. I mean, I think you know the the problem of you know, in, in Nairobi, most of the rivers that run, most of the squatter communities are built around rivers, and most of the rivers are now polluted. But they were going to get polluted by urban development anyway, and they were halfway polluted by industrial development and residential development because there isn't really sewage treatment, and everyone's dumping their sewage into the rivers. Just like, I should say, in Rio, even the wealthy neighborhoods uh, dump their sewage into the bay, untreated. Um, I think every community can be uh, improved. I do think that there are, uh, you know, what they call in Brazil, uh, zonas de risco, uh, areas of risk. You know, Brazil has a lot of rainfall. The favelas are on very steep cliffs. And uh, there are places where the water cascades down during a heavy rainfall. And it's probably not a good idea to build your house right in the pathway of that water. You're going to get wiped out. So... Um, I would argue that, you know, the cities need to work with the communities to set some limits, outer limits, on where their development goes. People should not go in the places that are dangerous for them to live. Um, I think that's true, and I think the people themselves would admit that and would abide by that if there was some other benefit for the community that was provided. So um, any place that's totally dangerous because of natural habitat, I would say, yeah, I could conceive of a public plan to work with the people who live in those conditions to move them elsewhere. But otherwise, just because a community is made out of mud, no, I don't see it as unsalvageable. And then another objection I think you hear from people is, especially with the high cost of rent, I have to pay rent for my place. Why do these people get to just set up on a plot of land and not have to pay. Well, you know, first of all, try doing it, right? It's, n it's not a picnic. I mean, people work really hard to build their homes, starting with nothing. Um, and their mortgage is their time, if you look at it that way. Um, you know, what do, we, what do we do? We, if we have the money, we get a bank to give us all the money, and we build a home, all right? 
they don't have the collateral. And so their mortgage is, I'll build it today out of cardboard. When I have another $200, I'll tear down one cardboard wall and I'll build that out of wood. When I have another, you know, and it goes on like that. And then they do it, once it's all wood, they do it all over again from wood to brick. And over 20 years, which might be the life of a normal mortgage here, they wind up with a poured concrete and brick reinforced concrete, maybe a second story, maybe a third story, home. And if you look at it that way, then you say their mortgage is just different than ours. And they've put a tremendous amount of investment into their home. And they pay upkeep, which would be the maintenance of a, you know, condo or a co-op. So, uh, and, and in some cases they pay rent. If I have built a second story on my squatter home, I can rent that out. And then that new squatter is actually a rent-paying tenant of me, the squatter landlord. Um, so that economy mirrors the economy in the formal world. So, you know, I urge anyone who thinks that this is a picnic to go and try doing it. Um, people work really hard and, and deal with a lot of deprivation just to have a roof over their head. Robert Newworth is... a. Robert Newworth is the author of Shadow Cities, A Billion Squatters, A New Urban World, and his newest book is called Stealth of Nations. Uh, thanks so much for speaking with us. Oh, it was a great pleasure, Andrew. Thanks for having me.